Welcome to episode 169 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and this is the podcast that's born for adversity. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. How are you tonight? I'm doing pretty well. How are you? I love that you went with the Born for Adversity tagline today. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, pretty much if you just like search the Bible for passages that say brother or like popular quotes online for brother, you can get a sneak peek of all of our taglines. <laughs> we don't really face any maybe adversity was... trying to make this podcast. I thought maybe there was just like something deep and heavy that you were going to disclose on this particular episode. Nah, no, keep it light. <laughs> we're not even good at like teasing stuff. <laughs> no, I know. There's not. There's nothing. There's nothing there. There's nothing going on. It's all good. Well, then we we might as well just move right into affirmations. And we, I think, decided in our pre-episode meeting, which was about thirty-five seconds long, that we were just yeah, going to double it up tonight. It. Yeah, and yeah, that was probably too long. And do yeah. the double affirmation, the double stack, affirmation double yes. stack. Affirmation double stack. Do you so want to go, go first or should I? I'll go first. I think you should go first. So I'm affirming that this is a little bit uh, strange. It's a it's a strange thing that we stumbled upon. It's a TV show called The Masked Singer, and it's kind of hard to explain. But basically, um, take like the format of like a like a talent contest show. Like it really, really reminds me of America's Got Talent. It's got a lot of similar kind of like visuals and production style. So you take that style with like four panelist judges, and then you take celebrities and you put them in elaborate con like elaborate costumes. And then the point is for the celebrities to continue to remain anonymous as they perform until the last person. So it's like famous singers. It's not all singers, famous athletes, politicians, like a whole bunch of different people who come out and sing and do these performances in these costumes. And you don't know who they are. And the whole point is for like the judges, instead of like picking the next America's next star, they have to like guess who these people are. And Ashley and I saw a preview of it. We were we were watching some TV and we saw a preview of it on Hulu. And we were like, let's just watch like the first the first performance and then we'll like make fun of it a little bit and then we'll get on with the day. And we watched it for two hours yesterday. It was like strangely compelling wow. and entertaining. So check it out. I don't know wow. what network it's on. We watched it on Hulu. It's really entertaining. It's just really strangely entertaining. It's called The Masked Singer. I've never seen this, but I have heard about it. And what's interesting about the whole show is that they only either you reveal your identity because you win it or you reveal it because you're voted off. Right. So like you, right. you're getting yeah. to see the judges can guess this whole time if they want to. But even right. if they guess correctly, you don't get disclosed then. But then once you're eliminated, you take out the mask and they're like, oh, man, I can't believe it was so and so. And now they're off the show. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's just really I don't know. It's really fun to watch for some reason. I, I I can't really explain. I actually said to Ashley towards the end of our like two hour binge that we didn't mean to do. Like I felt a little bit like maybe we had taken some sort of drug. Like maybe there was something in the food because <laughs> it was this weird, surreal experience that I couldn't quite explain. <laughs> and you're affirming this. Yes. It, and it was definitely entertaining. I mean, it was a fun show to watch and, you know, like it's, it's worldly people doing worldly things. So it's, it's fairly wholesome on the grand scheme of things. Like there's obviously no like nudity, there's no like swearing, there's no violence, but like it's secular songs, people dancing to secular music. So sometimes they're dancing a little like suggestively, but yeah, it's right. very interesting. It's, it's a very, it was a very strangely entertaining show. Put that on our long list of t-shirt slogans now. Worldly people gonna be worldly. Yes, exactly. Wretch is gonna wretch. What about you? What are you affirming? So this is uh, an affirmation inside an affirmation, like a delicious nut covered in chocolate. So we've mentioned on this podcast a couple of times how we're just 
unashamed stationary nerds. We kind of both, I think, came to that conclusion on an ep- episode, actually. We didn't exactly know that about each other. Yeah. Because there's just something about having a nice writing implement in a nice piece of paper or a notebook or a journal in front of you that just inspires you to want to write the next great American novel or to just take some notes or to write out your prayers yeah. or just to do a little bit of journaling. And so this week I received in the mail from a very gracious and generous listener a brand new journal that actually they had recommended privately and I checked it out online and now that I'm I'm holding it in the flesh I want to affirm this thing cuz it's beautiful and I'll give the I'll give you the exact make and model of this thing cuz journals are like vehicles they are they're very specific and so it's important to find one you like and I'm loving this one so this is a CR Gibson sounds like a guitar but CR Gibson it does charcoal gray leather journal notebook and it's seven and a half by ten and a quarter so it's like big it's like really nice like it lays out flat it gives you plenty of space to get your hand in there. I am left-handed, so I've got to have that space so I'm not smudging all over the place. And I want to affirm both the listener who sent it, because it was so kind, and uh, just say generally that the C.R. Gibson uh, gray leather notebook uh, journal is really fantastic volume. Like, it's beautiful, has that wonderful smell, it's sturdy, the paper is, like, soft, and it's, like, it's the Goldilocks paper. Not too firm, but firm enough where it's just really nice, and it will hold the ink, with, and I use a fountain pen, like, exceptionally well. So, it, this is the kind of thing that you just go out and get because it'll inspire you to get back into writing. And this year I want to do a little bit more writing with respect to note taking and journaling. So I was just blown away by this. It's a lovely gift and an even more lovely journal. So I'm just affirming all day long, the CR Gibson. It's really, really nice. Yeah. So I know we said we're going to do double affirmations, but I have to sneak a little bit of a denial in here. I have a denial for, for you stealing my affirmation. Because I also received one of these notebooks in the mail. And it's funny because, you know, you get it like, I I don't know about you, but like I order a fair amount of stuff on Amazon. So it's not terribly uncommon for me to get an Amazon package and not like know or be anticipating exactly what's in the package. And so I pick up the package out of the mail and I bring it in and I open it and it's this journal and I'm like, huh. I don't remember ordering a journal. So I'm looking at it and I'm, you know, I'm checking the address. It's like, yeah, it's got the right address. That's weird. I can't figure it out. And so I'm finally, I actually am, I'm finally about to call Amazon customer service to be like, did someone hack my account and send me this nice gift? Cause I couldn't find it in my order list. And so I'm like digging in the envelope, trying to find like the order thing. And then I find this nice little note from a generous TRB listener Uh, that they sent us this. So whoever you are out there, uh, this was a great gift. I'm going to make heavy use of this. And you're right. Like it's bigger. It's bigger than a moleskin. It's like a full size notebook. The paper is a little bit thicker. You can just feel it that it's a little bit of a heavier stock paper, but not like cardstock. It's not like super thick. Jesse's not going to be like cutting it up and making note cards out of it. And, um, (laughs) it's nicely spaced. I'm excited to, I'm excited to give this thing a little test run. (laughs) <laughs> you know, I realized as I was listening to you, my excitement and enthusiasm is shared. And I'm also thinking, man, this is just horrible podcasting. Here we are going on and on about describing a journal. Like, is there anything less interesting to hear than somebody talking about paper quality? But it really is that nice. And I really do get excited about really nice stationery. Uh, it, it's great. I mean, you know, This is one of those things that I've learned is we can talk about whatever we want to talk about because this is our podcast and (laughs) there's a fast forward button. If people don't like it, they can they can fast forward to something else on the show. Uh, Well, speaking of moving, maybe even fast, let me start us off with the second (laughs) round of affirmations and the double stack that we're putting on today. So this affirmation may fall flat because it's possible it might not translate, but I'm going to affirm that everybody take on this kind of joke or this kind of sense of humor in their family. So in my in-laws, in my wife's family, we have this running joke and it started because my wife's name is Jen, which is not inherently funny, but 
one of her cousins was trying to put Jen's phone number into her phone and for some reason accidentally spelled it as Ken. And so it stuck. And then what happened is Ken became this fictional character in their family who is kind of like a man for all seasons, like the Renaissance man, like the most, most interesting man in the world. And so now we all speak of Ken as if he is an actual person. And we always talk about him whenever we're getting together. He's in group chats. He has his own Facebook page. Nobody knows who is actually that Ken, but he's always doing interesting things. And I bring this up because my wife's cousin had a 40th birthday party. And now it's become our custom. Whenever we go to her, one of her family events, we always get two cards. One is for the actual, one is for, they're both for the person who is celebrating. One is from us. The other one I always write out from Ken. And it's become this great mystery of, who is Ken? And in a gathering, there'll be multiple references to him and there'll be like multiple cards from, from Ken. And it's always like, you know, like in this card, for instance, I wrote, sorry, I couldn't attend the party. I've been in Australia fighting bushfires and rescuing baby koalas, that kind of stuff. So it's, it's just one of those things that's, it's grown so big that he has his own personality. And I just think it's like the most random, hilarious thing because he's become a legitimate person. And sometimes it gets a little confusing because when people hear about it from the outside, they think there's this actual person named Ken who is among like the most interesting people they've ever heard described. That's pretty awesome. I, I don't know how to follow that up. <laughs> I, I, mean, I would like to meet joke. Ken, even, even knowing that Ken is not real. I would like to meet Ken. Can you introduce me to Ken sometime? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Yeah, I, mean, I, I need, definitely have I to need... send you something. So here's the question. When you write out the card from Ken, because you have very distinctive handwriting, do you disguise your handwriting to make it look like someone else's? This is a great question. And I've thought at great lengths about this because I wanted Ken to be as authentic as possible. I wanted to cloak my own contribution so that nobody would know it was from me. So I actually write in cursive, which I never do. So it's my cursive is is pretty ugly, but it's it would no there would be nothing to compare it to because I never write That's in cursive true. with the exception of signing my name. But my name is like so stylized and ridiculous that it's not actually a legitimate cursive. You know, now most people who listen to the show probably do not know this, but your handwriting when you write out like a card actually looks like a font. Like it, it's so crisp and precise and consistent and like right down to the like the height of the letters, like it really looks like it was like was typed on there. That must have taken a lot of practice. Yours is pretty neat as well, though. No, it's not. No, absolutely not. I look like a drunk five year old when I write. <laughs> That's a really unique combination. <laughs> yeah, not not even just a five year old, but a drunk five year old. It's It's like. One time I wrote something down on a piece of paper at the hospital and I handed it to a doctor and they were like, man, even I think your handwriting is bad. And it was a doctor. <laughs> they have the worst handwriting, except apparently for me, because it's really bad. Well, that's like a shout out to all the lefties out there, of which I know you're one. I think for me, it was just a matter of trying to make it neat and not smudge. And so over time, I just that's what happened is it was an effort to really try to make it really crisp because most lefty handwriting is pretty bad. And I, I was yeah. trying to avoid that stereotype, I guess, but yeah. So I, I'm affirming like make your, make up your own Ken in your family. Somehow make up this family member, this like estranged or distant family member. That's awesome. And then like send cards from that family member to other people and, you know, bring gifts from that person. It's just all, kind of, it's just a really weird source of fun. That's crazy. Yeah, that's, how about that's you? an awesome thing. So you stole my second affirmation, but I have rebounded <laughs> and created another second affirmation. Well um, played. I'm just affirming like doing stuff with your church family again on the Lord's Day. So a lot of churches, it's a kind of a classical position in the Reformed world to have like a Sunday evening Lord's Day service or a Bible study or a prayer meeting, some, something else in the evening uh, on the Lord's Day to sort of like bookend the day. And it helps to encourage God's people to be focusing on the Lord, engaging in, in public and private worship throughout the whole day. But, you know, we had church this morning as normal. We had our after our after church Sunday school as normal. And then, um, you know, we, we regathered at about four o'clock and, and at our church, we gather at uh, pastor's house to do this. 
but we just had this wonderful time of like casually studying the scripture together and then spending time praying for and with each other and for our community. And then we just hung out for a little bit and ate cookies. And it was just this really beautiful, sweet time of fellowship that, you know, like it's nice to like have a meal with someone after church, but coming back together again towards the end of the day, like it it reminds me a lot of like, you know, when, when you and Jen and, and your brother are home for Christmas or for midwinter, no reason, um, like there's that same rhythm to our day. Like we do something in the morning, like we open presents or we have breakfast or we do something. And then there's like a lot of times we kind of go our separate ways and do our own thing during the day. But then we always come back together in the evening for dinner and usually dessert. And it had that same kind of rhythm and feel to it. So it just was this really sweet time. So I'm affirming spending time with the saints on the Lord's day, not just on Sunday morning, but also throughout the rest of the day. I was just having a conversation with somebody recently about this very thing. And it seems like, I don't know if this is unique maybe to American culture or maybe more of just developed world culture, but we have this tendency, I think, in Christian circles sometimes to feel like for something to be particularly spiritual, it must be formal, formalized and systematized. And yeah. so this idea of like, well, we need to have, we need to really develop a small, a strong small group ministry. We need to really set aside focused time to gather people together to solve a particular problem, which is a need for intimacy and fellowship. And I was kind of remarking and struck by the fact that really what we need to do is exactly just what you're saying. It's just living life together in a way where Christian fellowship and discipleship is the priority. And out of that priority, I think, comes these things naturally when we desire to spend time with each other. But we should never illegitimize or make small sharing cookies with Christians. That is a beautiful, wonderful thing. In fact, I think sometimes it's the informal nature of normal activity, which proves that all things can be redeemed because God is big enough to encapsulate all those things. And so when we just gather in that kind of way, even if the conversation doesn't become like explicitly Christian, so to speak, we're still doing a great act of worship and praise by being with one another, encouraging one another by eating cookies, enjoying good fellowship and conversation, and just loving on one another by listening and being together. So I just, I like that idea because I'm realizing in my own life, I don't, I shouldn't need to have somebody call a meeting for me to gather together with brothers and sisters. And it shouldn't even have to be like, especially on the Lord's day, although that is an important part of what's happening here. But this idea of living life together is in the small moments, gathering informally, almost serendipitously during the week and doing it in a way that we don't need some kind of outside force. Like we do it without compulsion. We don't need to be cajoled. We don't need to have somebody, again, schedule the time for us, but we make it a priority and build it into our daily lives. Yeah. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. It, it just was it was just this nice, sweet time of fellowship. And, you know, it really I think it really showed like it's it's interesting because our Bible study that we're doing this year is the theme is like seeing how God treats the church like a family. Like how, how does God speak of the church in the scriptures as a family? What implications does that have for the way we interact with each other? And it just, it was so appropriate that like after this conversation, kind of this meal that we engaged in, in terms of like the scripture being the meal that we just kind of like had cookies afterwards. It was just really nice and and really sweet. Was that a pun? No. I mean, the cookies were great. Your mom makes great cookies. Yeah, she does. Yeah. So basically what you're saying, if we can summarize is if you give a Christian a cookie, he or she should want to share it with a brother or sister. Yeah, let's go with that. <laughs> so before we get into our topic, though, yes. I do have to call out one amazing thing that happened on Facebook this week. So last okay. week, if you recall, we requested somebody put together a Puritan style tagline for our podcast. Yes. And John Davis left this comment on our Facebook page. And this is this is the Puritan tagline, quote, on the fraternal discourse regarding reformed theology, particularly of the nature of proper hermeneutical and exegetical approaches to coming to a full understanding of the truth of the Holy Scriptures, the righteousness of God and the gospel according to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and the means of salvation pertaining thereunto and from where these means of salvation may be known, end quote. <laughs> John Davis, you win 
the internet. That that so is amazing. Good. And it actually is like a really apt discussion of all of the different things that we're trying to accomplish with this show. So thank you, brother. Like I, I can't even verbalize how awesome and epic that is. Yeah, I saw that and I thought, wow, that's actually a perfect encapsulation in that theme yeah. of the puritanical approach because yeah. it is a lot of words, but every one of them is important and meaningful. So it wasn't just kind yeah. of taking something and making it longer for the sake of making it more verbose. He actually hit it right on. So I thought that was really clever. And that pretty much is an apt description of what we're talking about today because we yeah. are back into MicaCast. Yes, it feels like it's been a really long time since we've done MicaCast, and I'm not sure why it is that feels that way, but I'm excited to get back into the tech. Yeah, so am I. So we're in the end of Chapter 5. We're looking at verses 10 through 15. So how about I just start off by reading those scriptures? Go ahead. I just want to get your, I want to get your approval first. I mean, I, yeah. I, wasn't, I was pretty sure you were going to say, no, don't read the Bible to me, but I yeah. wanted to make sure you were ready. Yeah. I mean, do, do we need like a motion for this? Because I can make a motion if you'd like. <laughs> so, so Robert's rules. Yep. There's only two of us, though, so we're going to run into problems. <laughs> so passes. All right. Here's you, Micah You may 5. proceed. <laughs> thank, thank you. I, I appreciate the floor. You have the here's floor. Here's Micah yeah. 5. Verses 10 through 15. And in that day, declares the Lord, I will cut off your horses from among you and will destroy your chariots. And I will cut off the cities of your land and throw down all your strongholds. And I will cut off sorceries from your land and you shall have no more tellers of fortunes. And I will cut off your carved images and your pillars from among you and you shall bow down no more to the work of your hands. And I will root out your Asherah images from among you and destroy your cities. And in anger and wrath, I will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey. Yeah. So this is, um, this is one of those kind of downer passages. But the beauty of this is um, it's actually sort of like a chiastic parallel with the beginning of chapter four. So that phrase, in that day, declares the Lord is a repetition of the same phrase in verse uh, chapter four, verse six. And what we see in chapter four is, uh, at least in part of chapter four, is in that day, God will assemble his people, right? There's this positive eschatological hope that will happen in that day. But now also in verse five or in chapter five here, we have in that day. And there's also this negative eschatological judgment that's going to come upon those who are far away from and obstinately opposed to the Lord. Right. Yeah. There's this sense in which, as I think we're moving through Micah, where I get to these verses and it's almost like it's go time. And God's yeah. you know, this, there's this repetition of this cleansing of cutting off that word is used consistently. And it's finally God saying, I'm, I'm going to cleanse. What's interesting is he's cleansing his nation. Once remove the pagan nations. And it's almost as if God's salvation cannot come otherwise than by stripping again, his nation, his people of all the vain and false military confidence, the sorceries, the idolatries. God's objective is to remove every form of faux strength and every proxy of control. And that's the thing that just on the face, as I took these verses in some really struck me hard because I think that is something that God, that's always God's providential prerogative to do that thing. And it applies specifically in Israel to the cutting off of all these things, but it doesn't mean that it applies. I think any less to us in terms of him often doing the same thing where he's going to cut off from us certain things that are sources of faux strength or some kind of analog for control. So I'm like ahead of ourselves a little bit with kind of speaking about where I see some of that application, but it's just amazing to me the directness of God in this sense. And that there is, there's a beauty of a loving father and a great mercy and kindness and his desire to cleanse his people and to know exactly how the cleansing ought to take place for their greatest good. And in a way that brings him the greatest glory. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that is a common theme in the scriptures is that the judgment of the wicked is 
deliverance for the righteous and yes. the deliverance of the righteous is judgment for the wicked. So even as early as, you know, Genesis three fifteen, which we often talk about as sort of the first giving of the gospel or the proto evangelion, that's actually embedded in the curse of the serpent. So the, the judgment of the wicked comes about in the blessing of the righteous. And, and we see the same thing here, right? So um, five, seven, through nine is talking about the remnant of Jacob that will be delivered. And then you see in verse 10, it starts with that word. And in that day, well, in what day? The day in which the remnant will be delivered. So, so the, the deliverance of the remnant involves this cutting off of all of the things that the remnant depend on, all of the things that the remnant trust instead of the Lord, right? Starts off with horses and chariots, which is a common feature, a common thing that Israel's warned against trusting in. It it cuts off the cities and strongholds. So we're probably talking specifically about fortified cities. We're not just talking about your average town or city, but but the actual military ones, which we saw earlier in Micah, God is gonna gonna strike out and against these military strongholds. Right. And then it moves and it this seems like a a shift that is like a shift in topic, but it's really not. The sorceries and the fortune tellers, these these ways that the people were trying to uh, discern and learn about the future apart from what the Lord had ordained as the means for that, right? There, there was obviously direct prophecy, but there was also the casting of lots, the Umin and Thumin, right? And then the carved images and the pillars, right? So these are these are the false gods, right? This is probably referring to the male and female fertility deities. Think like Baal and Asherah, those, those kinds of different uh, 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 pagan Canaanitic uh, fertility deities that will also be cut off. So this is not just um, this is not just a vengeance. You know, we see in verse fifteen, this isn't just the anger and vengeance that's executed on the nations that don't obey, but this expulsion and vengeance against the nations is the deliverance of the remnant. And I think right. you know, I think that this actually sort of teaches us a little bit. Not in a direct fashion, but this is just how God works, right? Sanctification is painful sometimes because it involves taking these corrupt and and distorted and sinful patterns of our lives and elements of our own personalities that God has to cut away like a surgeon. It involves some pain and some difficulty, but it's this cutting off, this judicial cutting off of those who are wicked but that also results in the purification and the deliverance of God's people themselves. Yeah, absolutely. It's this, it's exactly as Jesus described it in the sense that every valley will be filled and every high place will be leveled. And it seems, I like the way you described it because that was my impression as well, that there's a duality to the vengeance that God is executing here. That is both for purposes of punishment and refinement. It's as if, for his people, it's confidence restored by confidence crushed. And I think, yeah. again, like the providence of God is always to tear away from carnal confidences, which are often taken on consciously and subconsciously. And until God starts doing that exacting work of pulling them away, sometimes we don't even realize that our health or our money or our position status, our jobs, that these were things that we relied on to such a great degree that they were in competition with God that we did not realize it. And so he does all this that the people of God may enjoy such a security that they're not going to need any kind of other secondary confidences. That's an amazing love. I mean, when we think about God as the supreme being who is in himself, all fullness, all beauty, all glory, all majesty, the best thing, of course, that he can give is himself. And so he wants to give of himself in a way to us so that we rely on him completely and wholly and we can sense and have that kind of abundance in relationship with him, which will be imperfect in this life. But the fact that he is protecting his people by doing this is, I think, still an extraordinary kindness, though it is no less painful. Because it was the sin of Israel that they, as you said, furnished themselves extravagantly with horses and chariots and with diviners. And now God is promising that you're not going to be able to regard those anymore. And I think that's an act of merciful kindness with salvific implications, because what he's basically saying is these things will not save you. So we need to deal with this now. 
You need to come to terms with the one who is the redeemer and the rescuer, the one on whom you can rely without reservation and the one who will never let you down. The one that will not be crushed under circumstance or weight of worship or weight of glory. Only God can handle this kind of weight. So it's his prerogative to defeat his enemies and to destroy his competitors, to demonstrate their ineffectiveness and their insufficiency. And I think he continues to do this work in his people, as you said. Part of that is, I think, like you said, sanctification. Part of it to me is, is just this, this cutting away, I think, is sanctification. But it's almost like in order for us to enter the door of sanctification, the opening up of that door is the cutting away of these carnal confidences so that we may yeah. walk through because we realize we have nothing left. There, there's nothing else which we can stand on. So it's a great mercy to be deprived of harm of those things which we have confusedly assumed confidence in competition with God, which we have made our strength. So here is, I still see this as very similar to like the old Mosaic law, because it says as if God is coming in just with the 10 commandments and saying, do not hurt yourself. Do not harm yeah. yourself. I'm going to strip this stuff away. So you may see where your security really lies. Yeah. And you know, as I read through this passage a couple times, as I read some commentary, what struck me is, you know, when God when God does this sort of judicial cutting off in this sort of sanctifying sense that we're talking about, where he's he's judging our sin and he's judging in a sense he's judging us for our sin, but he's right. judging us in a salvific manner, in a way yes. that brings about our redemption and our salvation. Right on. Um there's it's it strikes me that some people will look at that and will recognize it in the midst of it and be able to say thank you to God as he's doing it. But I think more often than not, we don't recognize the, the you know, the fullness of what God is doing and the, the blessing in that pain until after the fact. And I think, you know, reading this, it, what kind of struck me is like, I want to be that kind of person that can, in the midst of this sort of surgical operation to remove my sin. I can see that although it hurts, although it's painful, although God is judging my sin and judging me for my sin, that it is for my good and be able to, to give thanks even in the difficulties of that. You know, I, I, um, I won't get into details cause I don't have a lot of permission to share it, but I know of someone and you'll know who I'm speaking of who, um, who has a family member who died. It, it wasn't, unexpectedly, but it was a, a condition that came on and deteriorated very quickly. And, you know, as I reflected on that situation, you can either look at that and you can say, this is terrible. This is awful. And I can't believe this happened. And I I'm so mad and frustrated and angry about it. Or you can, as this person did, um, as I've talked to them about it, can look at it and say, yes, this is painful and this is frustrating, but I know that God is going to do good out of it. Right. I, I may not understand what that good is. I may not understand how that good comes to be or who that will influence or impact, but I'm confident and I trust God that he will do good in this, even though it hurts. And, and I more and more want to learn to be someone who can speak that way, who can cry out to God in gratitude, even as I cry out to him begging for relief from the affliction I'm under like that. That's one of the things I think is, is we often think that that cry of affliction and that cry of gratitude are somehow contradictory. But I think that in God's economy, which never functions the way we expect it to in terms of our human reasoning, that cry of affliction and that cry of, of gratitude actually are in harmony with each other, not, not in disharmony with each other. Yeah, that's solid. I, I didn't intend to go here with this passage, but... You saying that and directing us, I, I think it does fit perfectly with what Mike is saying here. It's this idea that there is like a sweetness. It is as bittersweet as the idea of nostalgia, that there's something beautiful about it at the same time, very painful. And I'm with you. I am a guy that has, is all lag when it comes to this stuff. It, it's not even that sometimes I can't acknowledge and, and worship God through the pain. It's more that I have trouble even seeing how the, that the pain is being used for this purpose of extracting, or like you said, this judicial cutting. I'm not even seeing, like I'm blind to that until sometimes much later on. But I want to say that I think we ought to deny the kind of Christianity that says we need to sing happy music and dance at the tomb of Lazarus. 
there yeah. is a time for mourning and grief and pain and recognizing that we are people that feel deeply as God created us to. And yet at the same time, we get to see God, not just as the creator who brings all things into existence and upholds them by the word of his power, but he's also the one who rescues, who can take desolate, who can take what is dismayed and turn it into rejoicing. That shows another side of his beauty that of course would be altogether absent and we would be blind to if we didn't have this kind of pain. And so the reason why I think God allows these kind of things to creep into our lives and then to cut them out is so, so as to demonstrate the beautiful way that he is a bomb and a healer and a redeemer. And you saying all of that reminded me of a song, which I've recommended before. This is from a band called my Epic. And this is a beautiful song. I encourage everybody to look it up. It's a very haunting melody, but it's called black light. And I appreciate this song because I've been drawn to it at times when I've been in my own type of pain and had the pressure to say, well, we just need to power through it. It'll all get better in a second. And this song is basically saying, don't do that to, to rest and to lean into the suffering as Jesus Christ himself even did. And to recognize that God is using this. Yes, but it is okay to mourn and to lament because his people did that regularly. So just a couple of lyrics from the second verse, which I think will allow everybody to get a sense for the song. It says, sing out the dissonance. It's awful, but it's time for the truth. Don't tell the half of it. You'll only end up twice as confused. Come on, this ain't a blessing yet. Come on, it isn't beautiful to say it is. And I love yeah. that because it's implying that it will be a blessing, but it doesn't feel like that yet. And it can still yeah. be painful even as God is doing it. And there have been times in my life, to be totally candid with you and everybody else, where I've sensed in prayers of where you're just groaning Godwardly, either on behalf of somebody else or yourself who's experiencing this kind of pain and God is doing something. Maybe if God has led you into the desert where it seems he's removed the joy of his presence from you so as to draw you back onto himself, where I've sensed honestly that I'm in, as strange as this sounds, that I'm in the lap of, of Jesus and he's comforting me. And all he's saying to me is, I know it's going to be okay. Even while he's yeah. the one providing the discipline. Does that make sense? Like he, he's the yeah. one that needs to do this, but he's still saying to me, I know, but this is for your good. It will be yeah. okay. Yeah. And you know, what, what strikes me as I think through this, you know, I, I was about to say we should think of it more like surgery than like discipline, but it, in point of fact, like that discipline analogy and the surgery analogy are not actually different analogies, right? Discipline is in in many senses, and I use this word a little cautiously, but discipline is the infliction of some sort of violent mean to bring about a corrective action, right? Right. Not necessarily visit physically violent, although I'm, I'm not opposed. I'm not a parent. But if I was, I'm not opposed to spanking. Right. The Bible talks about the rod of discipline. And we have every reason to think that in that context, they're talking about an actual rod. But th- it's violent in the sense that you're imposing your will and you're you're enforcing something because of your power and your ability and your authority to do so for corrective loving purposes. And surgery is also the imposition of violence in order to bring about a corrective action. So in a sense, surgery and and discipline are not, they're not at odds with each other. They're kind of the same analogy. And, you know, as I just think about this more, like we really need to be a people that, that welcome and love and appreciate the discipline of the Lord. And sometimes that means like being okay with and being thankful for God's hard providences. And that that's really hard to do. Like that's a really difficult, I don't want to call it a skill, but I'm not really sure what else to call it. That's a difficult skill to cultivate because it, it really takes this sort of posture of humility and this really radical trust in who God is that even though it seems like he may be doing me evil, I know that God is not evil and I know that he does not do evil. And I know from his word you know, in a lot of ways, it's trusting trusting the promises of God given to us in the scriptures more than my subjective experience of what I think God may be doing. Right. It really is elevating the scriptures and the truth contained therein above my own understanding based on my experiences. And to me, that seems like the quintessential reformed thing to do, because it seems like that's really the hallmark of reformed theology is that although, you know, as we're talking about in, in uh reformed preaching cast, 
like there is an experiential element to reformed piety, right? We, we want to experience God, but there are times where we have to take our experience and for a time set it aside or sub, submit it to the written objective word of God in a way that really does sometimes cause us to deny our own experiences or our understanding of our experiences in favor of a more stable objective truth presented in the scriptures. It's for sure a condition of the heart that's learned. I think you're absolutely right on about that. And it's one of those things where we get the test before we receive the lesson. We read the scriptures and we give some sense of intellectual assent to the goodness of God as we understand it on the page. And then we see yeah. him, of course, doing things life as people. And we say, of course, yes, we can see the story. I see the grand arc in the narrative and God is doing this good thing. And then it comes into our lives. And like you said, isn't it ironic almost that we have to tell ourselves, and I do this all the time, say, God is good. He can only do what is yeah. good. And we have to say that almost as if to remind ourselves, this pain is so awful that it seems incompatible with the God that I right. know. And yet yeah. we know from reading that this God is good and that he uses this in such a way. But of course, when it's our nerves, when it's our feeling, when it's our loss, that's a totally different thing. And I think we've used the surgical metaphor so many times here. And I just, I'm with you. I keep coming back to it because what I've realized after this past year is if you just take yourself out of the modern context and have somebody describe surgery to you, it sounds absolutely insane. Right? I mean, yeah. surgery yeah, it really does. is an insane thing because it's somebody inflicting purposefully a violent wound on your body so as to go in and repair something and then to sew up the wound they've inflicted and so that you're better off than before. I mentioned before right. in this past year, my wife had to undergo you know, several very serious abdominal surgeries. And especially toward the end, when she was getting to the end of that process, and you know, the surgeon would describe what he's going to do. Not only is it, I would think this sounds crazy. Like this just sounds insane. Like in any other circumstance, like if this were like a dude in the back of a van, I'd be like, this is crazy. Like it only makes a modicum of sense because I'm like sitting in a sterile doctor's office and this person has a jacket on and a stethoscope and I see the diplomas on the wall and supposedly he's well-trusted and there was a secretary who scheduled the appointment. That all it brings some air of legitimacy to the process. But when the doctor is like, this is what we're going to do. And you know, you've been involved. You've seen, you've seen surgeries. Like mm-hmm. it, it's a violent process. Like now they're cutting you open, but they're just, you know, I'm being somewhat hyperbolic, but in this case, they're just throwing organs around, moving things with their hands. Like they're doing things you want to be like, can you do that? Should you do that? And in the end they're saying, this is going to be the most good for you. It's, it's going to yeah. fix and resolve something. It's essentially going to redeem a part of your body that is not functioning properly. And trust me, when it's all said and done, you will be thankful that you underwent this process. Even if the recovery is super long and painful, you will be thankful that you had it done. That is crazy. And so I, I think that we need, we need to have the same kind of faith in God, but that's so much easier said than done. And one other thing that struck me with what you were saying, and this is somewhat straw man, but, but go with me here for a second, is I think you're right in that there is a violence with respect to when God decides to discipline us, when God decides to put us under anesthesia, so to speak, and put the knife to us spiritually, he is imposing his will over ours. And there is a violence in that, in the sense that he's killing our will by his own and under his own volition. Right. And it strikes me that that's very much against and in contradiction against an Arminian mindset, which would say that God can basically only do that which we allow him to do. Right. And I think in many cases in the Christ, so it's in, in this Arminian perspective, doesn't stop, of course, just when we, we speak about the order of salutis, but what about yeah. everything thereafter? When God does stuff in our lives that we don't want, which is to say, basically, we never know what it is to follow God if we always got what we wanted. So he's always going to do this stuff. There is a killing of our will that we don't get a choice in. That he's going to overwhelm it and overthrow it, as Paul says, to such a degree that we might even despair of our lives themselves. That doesn't seem to me like the kind of thing where if you give me the choice, in other words, I'm never going to agree volitionally to that. Or it would take like a major act of God anyway in, in regeneration to get me to agree to that up front. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah, I do. And you know, I, I was actually just thinking this, like the Westminster uh, shorter catechism 
I don't remember the question, which question it is, but it, it talks about the threefold offices of Christ, right? That Christ executes the office of a prophet, a priest, and a king. And then it goes through each of those offices to explain how Christ executes that office. And I think the the answer to the question, how, how doth Christ execute the office of a king, is really telling in a sense that it really exemplifies what we think Christ is doing in our salvation. And the answer is that the first part of it is that he subdues us to himself. Right. Right. So it's using this language of overcoming us. He's subduing us to himself. And then it's, he, then he, then he rules and defends us. Right. So, so he overcomes our will. He subdues us to himself. Then he rules us. He, he reigns over us. He executes his will over us. And then the last part is he conquers and defeats ours and his enemies. Like, so, so all along the process, it's God imposing his will. And, and this is what I think is, is really interesting to kind of bring it back full circle about this passage is there's, I I can't get past this sort of dance that's going on in in Micah here, that the blessing of God on his people is the expulsion of the enemies, right? right? So just going, rolling back a little bit to verse eight, it says, and the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations in the midst of many peoples, right? And then it says in verse nine, your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries and all your enemies shall be cut off. And then the next several verses, that language of cut off is applied to all of these things that stand in the way of fully trusting the Lord. Right. So yes, there's these pagan peoples that the, the nation of Jacob or the remnant of Jacob are among, right? And those are the adversaries who will be cut off. But then it extends that logic of what will happen to the adversaries to the things in the midst of the people themselves yes. that need to be cut off away from the people. Yes. So it's this, it's this element. It's like cutting out a cancer, right? To go back to the surgery. We're just all over every kind of metaphor we have this tonight, <laughs> but, but that cancer is among you. It's in you. It's part of you. Right. And it needs to be cut off away from you. It needs to be cut out of your body. And that requires violent means. Like there's no, there's no way to get rid of cancer that is pleasant, right? There's no sugar pill you can take. You can't just meditate the cancer away. You have to cut it out. You have to poison it. You have to overcome it by violent means in order to get rid of it. And that is going to take a toll on your body. Like people don't come out of cancer treatment feeling great about their bodies and feeling good and healthy in their bodies. They come out feeling like they've been in a war because they've been in a war. And I think sometimes we treat our spiritual life like we should be coming out of this war against sin, hunky-dory, and everything's fine, and we're fine, and everything's great, and we love everything. But in reality, like, the war against sin is hard. It's hard, and it it has, there's casualties in our spiritual life that sometimes when God cuts out the sin, he takes with it some of our happiness. Like, that's, that's reality. Like, that's the dark night of the soul is that there is this sense that a loss is a loss and it takes us time to get over that loss. Even though that loss is ultimately a good thing, it still has this sense of mourning and grief that isn't entirely inappropriate, right? When someone's recovering from surgery, a lot of times they, if you ask them how they feel, they're going to say, I feel terrible. I feel really bad. I really hurt. I feel sick. I'm nauseous. Like there should be a sort of spiritual sense of that as well. We're not going to go from um, being burdened with sin to being unburdened from sin without some sort of transitional state that is not entirely pleasant. It just isn't going to happen. Right. I totally agree with that. I mean, there's so many medical metaphors for that because I have a friend who just recently underwent double hip replacement surgery, which is, that's a crazy process in and of itself. But that's been his, that was his immediate response is like, he almost regretted, should I have done this very thing? And of course, as the healing takes place, as God does the healing through time, there's a change in perspective on that. But in that moment, when you come out of it and you have to stand up for the first time, you, I, I don't think it would be possible to think anything, but I've made a horrible mistake (laughs) because this pain is so much worse 
than the pain I was experiencing before. I, I've replaced it with something that's more horrific. And yet I think, like you said, God does this replacement. And what struck me in what you were saying is that the amazing thing about God is to stay in the surgeon metaphor, we need somebody who is the expert, who has authority, who is sovereign, who has the power to affect that kind of change. And again, we see yeah. God's glory when he does that. And so I think what's interesting about what Micah emphasizes here is that the enemy is exogenous and endogenous. He's both outside, and it's easy for us to see that. Like, look at the pagan peoples. See what they're doing. See how they are law haters, how they stand against God. And Micah says, no, 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 that is true, but it's also within you. The enemy is within you as well. The same behaviors, the one you want to point to, the enemy that is right in front of your face is the one that's also deep within and God will purge them both. One, he sets aside for complete destruction. The other, because you are his chosen people, he burns out so that you may be pure and holy. And so I've made up this term, and it's probably not a great term, but here's what I'm calling it. In this passage, I'm calling this providential symmetry of divine action. You like that? Wow. Providential symmetry of divine action. So here's my thesis on, on what that means is, this idea of God's vengeance, those who stand against the gospel of Christ and continue in league with their idols, they're going to fall under the wrath of God and be consumed by it. God will give his son either the hearts of people in mercy or the necks in judgment. He's going to yeah. make us either his friends or his foes. So God's vengeance takes place when he secures his sovereignty by delivering his people at the same time punishes the guilty oppressors. oppressors. But to your point, it is the same action, is the same act. It is conquering enemies. But you notice in one, it leads to other damnation and destruction. And then the other, it leads to purification. But there's a symmetry of providential action in that respect. And right. so that's why I'm calling this providential symmetry of divine action. Yeah, you know, it's funny ju- just to be totally stupid and nerdy. So there's, <laughs> there's this Do game it. I play. I haven't played in a while, but there's this game I play called RimWorld. And it's like this weird simulation where, like, you have these three people, they crash land on a planet, you have to, like, rebuild a colony. But one of the things that happens, the the primary way you expand your colony is by capturing people who have attacked you. And you either have the choice, you you take them prisoner, you kind of nurse them back to health, and you have the choice to either execute them or to take a much longer time and convince them to join your colony. Hmm, interesting. And but it's the same basic action in both both cases. Yeah, exactly. Like, like you, it's the same person doing it, and it it really is. It's it's interesting. It just shows how how much you and I think alike on these things. Is I was going to go to the exact same place. Is that in the text here? Like as I've been talking about, sort of. Yahweh executing violent means on his people and also his enemies. There's been like this part of me that's like, ah, do I really want to use that language? Like, right. I, uh, like I don't, I feel, I feel squishy about that. But like, you can't deny it in the text here. Not only is he, is he doing the same thing? It's the exact same words, yes. right? Verse yes. nine, the enemies will be cut off. Verse 10, your horses will be cut off. Your chariots, your cities, all of these things are going to be cut off from you. None of these things, well, horses, chariots, cities, strongholds, those are not intrinsically evil unless they're being trusted in instead of Yahweh, which is what was happening among the people here. So what we have is either God is cutting off the enemies or he's cutting off the sin within, which is just a different kind of enemy of our people. Right. Right. So, so I have, just as you said, like I have, we have, the the church has external enemies, right? There are external oppressors. You know, my mind goes to what's going on in China with the government wanting to register Christian actions. It's, it goes to the Middle East where there's persecution of Christians, a violent means. And then there's internal enemies, right? There's, there's the sin that still remains inside of us. And, and it's no, it's no coincidence that the Westminster, um, standards use the language of war in reference to sanctification that that the corrupt part of us and the part that has already been sanctified there is a constant war going on between those two parts of us and ultimately war is messy and it's painful and it's frustrating but at the end of the day in in the christian's life we know that victory is assured right and so this this is where this is where i think the text goes here, and we're going to get into it as we get into the next uh, the next couple chapters here. The, the, the scripture presents 
our perspective as sort of warriors in the battle, as a victorious, joyful warrior who understands that the rest of the battle is going to be painful and difficult, but because the outcome is secured, we can still rejoice as though we were already at the outcome. Right. I can rejoice in the hope of the resurrection, despite the fact that my death is still out in front of me, that I'm going to die someday, but I can still rejoice as a person who lives resurrection life because I know that's going to happen because I can trust that's going to happen because God's promised that it's going to happen. Right. That's the great distinctive of Christianity, isn't it? The Essentially, it's the fact that our eternal destiny, our judgment after death has been clicked, dragged, and dropped into the present, so to speak. Exactly. By yeah. justification through Christ and sanctification positionally and thereafter, such that we now live with a sense of glory already achieved because of what Christ has done, regardless of the current circumstance. And the battle comes into, as you said, being transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we might remember that that's exactly the truth now, yep, even while exactly. we're in pain. Yeah. Yeah, I couldn't have said it better myself. So, Jesse. Yes. How are you? How do you feel about this? <laughs> it's kind of a heavy episode. Yeah, it is. it is. But you know what? I'm glad that we have these conversations. And here's another thing. One of the, I think, happy byproducts of us like going through Micah, because I can understand like some people might be thinking like, just, you know, get to it guys already. Like it, this, maybe this is not the most interesting way to form a podcast series where you just go through the scriptures of five verses at a time and talk about it. But, but here's why I might push back on that. I had no idea exactly what we'd be talking about tonight when we, yeah. when we, with respect to these verses, I know we looked at them. We always prepare by trying to set our hearts on what these mean and how we understand the word of God. And at the same time, when we go through like this, the scripture sets the agenda for us, which I love. And I'm always surprised at really the breadth of our conversation and the scope. It went in lots of different places, but it was all uniquely tied together in this central theme of what Mike is talking about here. So it's heavy, but I hope that somebody out there will be encouraged by this. Who's going through something now that's deep, or if they're in a desert or if they're just experiencing downright a a large amount of pain. And so I want to say like, God is a God of hope and there is always strength for today and hope for tomorrow when we seek after him and we rely on him. He will always come through. And so because we know, like you said, the beginning from the end with respect that God wins, that our salvation is secured and that he's doing this for our good. I really hope that'll be some small amount of comfort for somebody who's experiencing something equally deep and hard right now. So it's hard, but it's good. I'm glad we can talk like this and we're not afraid from getting into some stuff that's not necessarily like, I mean, you might not get stoked and want to run through a wall after all this, but it might help us maybe to stand a little bit firmer in the place where we are right now and to cling a little bit more closely to the Lord Jesus Christ, who himself leaned into suffering greatly and is well acquainted with the kind of grief that we experience in this life. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, I really dig the like the the vibe you've got going on, but I just had this amazing idea for a, a Reformed Brotherhood T-shirt, <laughs> and it's of course it's, you did. I did. It's your face on the Kool Aid Man <laughs> running through a wall. Oh yeah, with the caption that says "Reformed Brotherhood." So stoked you just want to run through a wall. <laughs> I mean, so if there's, I need some, like some good artists out there who can make that happen for me. I know I come back to that a lot, but that is like, for me, the only word picture I can conceive of that really encapsulates often how I feel after our conversations. This is like iron sharpening iron. This is like the fellowship you were talking about. This is like the people of God getting pumped up in the scriptures and being with one another in a way that I cannot replicate on my own. And that's the way it's supposed to be, right? Yeah. Yeah. So we're, we're coming down to the uh, end of this Micah series pretty soon. Uh, we've got a couple more chapters, probably four more episodes or so, maybe five. Uh, we're going to take a little pit break, pit break, pit, pit break. stop. Uh, when we get to the famous verse, when we get to Micah six, eight and do something a little bit different, but you know, we would love to hear uh, some feedback from the brotherhood here about 
has this been helpful? What have you liked? What should we do next? You know, we, we're always looking for ideas and we're getting to the point where we're going to start planning kind of in big picture terms. I know we joke about like not planning, but we, we try to have some sort of outline or roadmap of what we're going to talk about over the next couple months. And let us know, like we're doing this podcast. I will be totally transparent. Like I do this podcast predominantly because it's edifying for me. Like I, I learn too. things about this scripture when I'm talking and when I'm processing this stuff that I've never, never really come to before. So it's, it's extremely edifying for me, but we also do this because we want to be edifying to the broader Christian community at large. So join our Facebook group, share with us what you've learned through this Micah series, what you think we've gotten wrong, what you think we could do differently. Um, let us know if, if you want us to do another book of the Bible, or if you want us to, to do something else, do you want us to get back to kind of like random, whatever we think of episodes every week where we're not doing a series, um, let us know what's worked, what hasn't. We really want to do a show that is edifying to the community. And you know what? This Facebook group that we've got is starting to be a pretty cool niche little place that I really enjoy being in. You know, we make this joke about the Puritan tagline, but there's a whole thread in the Facebook group now that's like Puritan movies, uh, not Puritan movies, but common <laughs> movies popular movies with Puritan titles. And I got to be honest, some of them are so good that I can't even figure out what movie they're talking yeah, about. Yeah, they're they're hilarious. They're, they're pretty sweet. Can so, you, so join can the group. you share yours? You should share yours. You wrote one. Oh, uh, I'll have to look it up. They figured out what I was uh what I was doing. I couldn't I figure out what yours was. Do, do I have I seen the movie, did. do you think? Um, it's possible that you didn't. I have to find the thread here. Because my I feel like your movie would be something I, I have it almost in front of me here. I, I feel like your movie would be something in like the Marvel universe. So I might not be the best. Oh, I have it right in front of me. Do you want me to read it? Uh, yeah, go ahead. Okay. So this is your description. The challenge was give your favorite movie a Puritan title. And this is what you wrote. The value of friendship, community and unity exemplified by the challenges of assembling a singing group in the absence of instruments and the resolution therein, which I just want to say, that's a great description. So obviously I can take from this, it's something about singing and it's obviously acapella, but yeah. I, I'm actually shocked that this would be, this is like a, a favorite movie of yours. Yeah, this is, I won't call it a guilty pleasure because I am totally unashamed of this. <laughs> I love, and Matt Butts shares this love with me. I love the Pitch Perfect movies. <laughs> I absolutely love those. Where, you, where did this I, come from? Everybody has those movies where when you're flipping through channels and they come on, you just stop and watch the movie no matter what else you have to do. This is that movie. And this is one. The, the first one, the second one was okay. The third one was pretty awful. The first movie, you know, it was just, there was something so, uh, wholesome's not the, definitely not the right word. <laughs> There was something so like oh, this is organic so about it. This like is it so just, great. It just scratched an itch that I didn't know I had. Uh, it, like wow. I said, it really is a movie. Just like in the title, like the 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 movie isn't a isn't just about <laughs> this singing group. It's about learning to live in a community and like the way that the movie, like kind of the symbol that the movie uses to show how this community has to form and work together and overcome their differences Spoiler is alert. this like, is this uh, acapella singing group that can't get it together at first. And then they, they have to figure it out as they go. Uh, so I just really so, like it. That is so great. I really was shocked when I read your description, because I was for sure thinking this is going to be some kind of cinematic epic. That's of the hero yeah. variety. But I was totally thrown by this. I had no idea. Like I couldn't even guess. I wanted to write something crazy, but I was like, I don't even know what this is. I, I'm, I'm so surprised that singing is involved. So that is amazing. Yeah. So Les Lanfear, who I didn't even know was in our Facebook group. So cheers to Les. Uh, he wrote the undoing of the cataclysmic snap through the mighty works of the man of iron and his avenging allies, which is that that's the quintessential Marvel Puritan title. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. I have no idea what cataclysmic snap means. You saw, you saw infinity war, didn't oh, you? Oh, it's that snap. The whole like yeah, finger the, snapping the, uh, thing. Well, it's, it's yeah, it's, it's, uh, 
uh, Endgame, and it's the undoing of it by the Man of Iron. I got Iron you. Man. Yeah. I, I got you. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So this is reason enough if you're not in the Facebook group to join so you can see this thread. There, It's several deep, and people have written all kinds of amazing titles that are converting their titles of their favorite movies into some kind of puritanical form. It is hilarious. Everybody yeah. should look at yeah. it. Yeah, so join up. You know, like I said, we're, we're not trying to be the new pub. We're not trying to replace any other Facebook group. But I do think that this community that has built up around this podcast and, and what we're trying to accomplish and sort of the, the type of community we're trying to foster, it really is starting to develop in this Facebook group. So I'm very excited to see that. So join up if you haven't. Jump in. Join the conversation. Uh, it's probably the only reformed Facebook group that I know of that still is open on Sundays. Uh, but we want it to be a place where we can dis- discuss spiritual things. Uh, so join up and, and join the Brotherhood that way. We're really excited about it. I love it. Well, I think that pretty much does it for this episode, Tony. It, again, it was fantastic. I love talking about yes. the scriptures with you. So until next time, honor everyone. Love the Brotherhood.